0: What is up, people? It is a good day to be listening to the Help Me Believe podcast, or if you are joining us via YouTube, you are in for a treat today because today I sat down with another world-renowned Christian apologist, none other than Sean McDowell. If you are into apologetics and theology, I'm assuming you are, you wouldn't be listening. You probably have heard of Sean McDowell, his father, Josh McDowell. Great guy, we had a great conversation about his recent dialogue with Hemant the free, the Friendly Atheist um, and they were both on the Justin Brierley's Unbelievable show and they did a live uh, discussion in Portland I believe talking about misconceptions that each side has of the other and it was a great conversation, you should definitely uh, listen to that if you haven't already um, I'll perhaps I'll leave a, a link in the description to that as well but I wanted to tell you a little bit about Sean before we get into the interview. Uh, Sean is a Christian apologist, a writer, a speaker. He speaks all over the place on, the, on the apologetic topics. Uh, he's an author of uh, over 18 books, including So the Next Generation Will Know, which is his upcoming book. Um, looks like it's supposed to come out in 2019. And we talk a little bit about this book at the end of the episode, uh, so be sure to uh, listen to that. Uh, he's co-authoring that book with J. Warner Wallace, who I talked to just a few weeks ago. He's got a ton of other books, uh, most notably, in my opinion, Evidence That Demands a Verdict with his father. Uh, the, the newest edition includes uh, some, some contributions from Sean as well. So you should get that book for sure. That is a hallmark in Christian apologetics. You should definitely have that on your bookshelf if you uh, want to know more about Christian apologetics, that sort of stuff. Uh, he teaches... A christian apologetics at biola university where he's a graduate from he got two master's degrees from there one in theology one in philosophy and then he went on to do a phd in apologetics and worldview at southern baptist theological seminary so he's a smart guy he knows his stuff and uh, he's a a, a wonderful communicator and and author so check his stuff out at seanmcdell.org to find out more Um, I'll probably leave a link in the description to that as well Before we get into the interview, one last thing Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon page You can do that for as little as a dollar a month It's only $12 a year And you can help us out, support us, uh, support the show So that we can keep doing this And we can do more things Um, Support at the $5 level And you'll get access to the 5 more minute bonus segment And uh, you don't want to miss the bonus segment with Sean We had an interesting conversation there as well A little rivalry, sports rivalry little uh superhero rivalry you're not going to want to miss that you want to get you're going to want to get that five minute more bonus segment so be sure to su- subscribe to our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash help me believe again the link will be in the description but for now sit back and enjoy the show thanks so much well hello and welcome to help me believe the show about christian apologetics and theology my name is hayden clark your host And today I'm excited to introduce to you a world-renowned Christian apologist, Lisa Quintana's favorite apologist, ladies and gentlemen, Sean McDowell. How are you doing, Sean?
1: Good. What an introduction, (laughs) Lisa's favorite. That's a big deal. Thank you. I interviewed
0: her last week, and I promised her that I was going to (laughs) introduce you like that. So, I love it. Just to spring that on you. How are you doing today? Doing well. Yeah. Thanks for asking. How's Southern California?
1: man i love southern california i hate our taxes and our government <laughs> bankrupt that's a separate issue but it's a beautiful place to live <laughs> oh man
0: that's great well um if you don't mind uh introducing yourself tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for those who are not familiar
1: i do not mind at all my name is sean mcdowell i teach uh in the apologetics program at tablet school of theology biola university i've uh, been there six years before that, I taught at a Christian school, Worldview Apologetics, full-time, and I still actually do that part-time, three mornings a week. I'm in with high school students. I actually have two classes doing ethics, theology, Bible, uh, Worldview Apologetics, and then I get to speak and write a little bit, and uh, i am also been married 18 years to my high school sweetheart and have three pretty awesome kids.
0: Cool deal. Well, thank you uh, for uh, coming on. I appreciate you doing this. Um... I've read a lot of your books and works over the years, so I, I really do appreciate you coming on. Um, what drew you uh, to apologetics? Is there something uh, you know along your testimony that made you get into apologetics? I mean, I know your dad, of course, is pretty well known in the apologetics world, but what kind of drew you to apologetics?
1: Probably a combination of things. Certainly growing up at home with a father who's an apologist who is passionate about it. I saw him affecting lives through it would engage me and my sisters with apologetic questions and, and other issues growing up. That certainly is a, a piece of the puzzle that I can't ignore. Although when I first started, there were a lot of questions like, do I want to enter into this realm where my dad has been remarkably successful? Yeah, kind of do big shoes. The, yeah. yeah, the expectations that would come with that, those were those were real questions. I'd also just say the way I'm wired, I, I naturally ask questions. I'm kind of philosophic philosophical in my thinking and my approach to things, always kind of want to know why and just give me a reason for something Mm -hmm. when somebody makes a claim. So I think it's the way God has just built me. And third, some of my own questions in terms of going through a real season of doubt, Mm -hmm. even in college at a Christian school, I really got online and this is kind of mid nineties and started reading some of the early websites that were built responding to a lot of my dad's books, like evidence Mm -hmm. that demands Verdict. And I got on there as a 19, 20-year-old kid and saw these doctors and lawyers and historians going chapter by chapter just trying to dismantle my dad's stuff. And it was pretty unsettling. I knew my dad was smart and meant well, but seeing that kind of stuff and just not as prepared as I – well, I don't know that any 20-year-old is really prepared for right. all of that. And my parents did a great job, but I started thinking, i got to have an answers to this. And then people like William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland and – and N.T. Wright Through Time, and Gary Habermas. These thinkers just had a huge influence on me. And so as I looked at the next generation coming up, I remember thinking, gosh, they're growing up in a world where there's endless questions, the challenges I face. If I'm going to effectively reach this generation, apologetics seems like a pretty interesting and relevant and critical approach to take. Yeah,
0: I've heard it said that apologetics is kind of a uh... Not the new evangelism, but it has a lot to do with evangelism, especially for this uh, next generation, upcoming generation. So uh, I can relate a lot to what you said. Um, being in a Christian school, I was going through seminary whenever I um, kind of had a crisis of faith. And I, I've, yeah. I've I've kind of noticed that all the apologists like yourself at some point had some sort of um, crisis of faith that led them into apologetics. I call it kind of like apologetics by necessity. Like it was yeah, I gotta learn this stuff or or I'm not sure if I can continue. So that seems like a pretty common element.
1: Well I think that's right. Either you have somebody like a Jay Warner Wallace or Lee Strobel or my father Josh McDowell who were trying to disprove it, motivated to find out if mm-hmm. it had any credibility, and then they want to tell the world about it. Or you have people that are kind of raised in it and start thinking Gosh, is this true? They get challenged, they get rocked, and get at some point sufficiently motivated right. to really take it seriously. So it tends to be one of the two. I yeah. think you're right.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I recently – or I watched your recent uh, – I guess I wouldn't call it a debate, but a dialogue with uh, Hemet, the the friendly atheist on The Unbelievable Show. Um, big fan of The Unbelievable Show, by the way. You should watch that if you don't. But um, that was a really great dialogue. Um, it, it seemed really friendly, uh, pun intended. But, um, and I think we need more of that, you know, uh, just a dialogue between uh, believers and non believers like that. So I was wondering what your thoughts on the dialogue uh, were.
1: Oh, I enjoyed it a ton. I've done, I think that's my fifth one on Unbelievable, but the second we've done live. And there's nobody who hosts dialogues better than Justin Briarly. He knows how to keep a conversation going, he knows how to be fair and judicial to both sides, he knows how to draw out the questions that really matter. So we were up in Portland, and there was, I don't know, 600-plus people there, lively audience, and Hemond is a sharp guy. He has a huge YouTube following, a couple hundred thousand. He's got a popular blog. Uh, he's written a book. He's, he's an articulate, just spokesperson for atheism. And what was interesting about this dog is we each came up with uh, two objections we think the other side consistently has about our own. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know the two he was going to come up with. He didn't know my two, although mm-hmm. we both told Justin. So, on the spot, you know, I'm hearing from him what this big objection is, and I push back. He hears mine and pushes back. And I think anybody who watches it could just kind of see where we're coming from, some of the misunderstandings that both sides often have, and how where the root of the disagreement really mm-hmm. is. But also, like you said, not only in the substance, we talked about the intersection between science and faith. We talked about whether faith is blind, mm-hmm. you know, a number of issues like that. But we also really, I think, modeled how you disagree with somebody right. and push back, but do it respectfully.
0: And I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I almost feel like that's almost more important. Like, it's, I get that we need to go through these uh, the substance of it. We're, we're trying to convince and evangelize and that sort of stuff. But that model of um, <clears throat> how to dialogue, how to disagree with uh, somebody – is uh, very important. I don't think it could be overstated. And so I was actually going to kind of ask you about that. Did you, do you kind of see a difference between a dialogue and a debate? And and if so, uh, which do you think is or uh, more valuable
1: perhaps? Well, it's hard to say one's more valuable than the other because they have different audiences and different purposes. So I think what William Lane Craig and mm-hmm. Frank Turek and people like Mike Lacona do – debating academics, often at a university, sometimes as a church, I think is vital Mm -hmm. because it really shows, hey, Christianity can compete in the worldview of ideas. And I think in in most of these debates actually win Mm -hmm. and you stand up and you follow something that's not, it's scripted in terms of the format, but the content is not. And you just see a Christian going toe to toe with a leading academic. I think that's tremendously valuable. Mm -hmm. And I hope the three of them I mentioned keep doing it. I've done formal debates like that, but that doesn't, as much as I love doing it, I think people need to see a conversation. They need to see a give and take. For one, I think as a whole, people are less interested in listening to 20-minute lecture, 20-minute lecture, 12-minute response, 12-minute response, 10, 8, 5. Like yeah. I think the format of that has changed some. And I think people love the live interaction and just kind of seeing things unfold in front of them where they don't know exactly where it's going to go. Right. But I, I also think discussion is so divided it's so vitriolic that to just have a conversation and treat somebody generously and walk away not only go wow, christians can be smart they can be winsome but they can joke and not take themselves too seriously they can sit down and listen to somebody and take a point or two that maybe christians can work on it's that relational uh, approach that i think speaks volumes that is not as easy to draw out in a formal debate As it is in a conversation with a couch and even the physical scenery, if you watch on YouTube, you'll see it was set up intentionally to model conversation, and it's not that it lacks substance. Mm -hmm. It just shows people, hey, the divide is not as great as we think relationally, and we actually have a lot in common. Let's sit down and find out amidst our differences how we can be friends, how we can fight for common causes, and how we can just treat each other as human beings. I think that is just as needed, and like you said, if not more – than the content itself, because people can read a book, they can watch a YouTube video. Right. When they see that live interaction, I think it speaks volumes. In particular, from a Christian who's confident in their belief mm-hmm. and just generous towards the other side.
0: Yeah, I think, like you said, I think it, it's it's um, incredibly valuable these sorts of dialogues, uh, especially given the the polarization of uh, this country, this culture right now. And so to see two people of Complete opposite ends of the spectrum of a very um, important and potentially divisive topic as God and and belief um, to come together and talk like that is really great. Yeah, I don't think it could be uh, overstated how important that is. Um, I did want to ask you a little bit about the content, though. Uh, So we talked a little bit about the format. And uh, so the content was, um, each of you had two misconceptions that the other side has on your position. And so um, the first one, uh, the first misconception that you raised that atheists sometimes have against Christians is that faith is belief without evidence. Um, is that fair? Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's how faith yeah. is often defined.
0: Um, did you want to um, kind of respond? I mean, even though you, you might be repeating yourself from the dialogue, but uh, why is, what is faith and why is it not belief without evidence?
1: I've read so many atheists, I've listened to the talks, I've had conversations with them and consistently they'll say, we are the side of reason and evidence and proof, but you Christians have faith, which mm-hmm. is believing something without evidence and proof. And I think this is a complete straw man. Somebody can only hold that view if they just don't understand and haven't taken the time to charitably read Christian writings or they're intentionally misrepresenting it. Those are the only two possibilities. Mm-hmm. And so I don't I, I don't know the case for, for Hemant on this, so it's not about him in particular. It's a general observation that consistently people say, well, it's either faith or it's reason. And my pushback to the discussion was no. Actually, if you just look at the biblical text itself, faith is an invitation to believe what we have reason to think is true Mm -hmm. faith goes beyond the evidence but it's no less than evidentially based this is one reason jesus did miracles he he did this so people would know and then believe in fact i took uh in the discussion i went back to exodus and i said if you look at these 10 plagues you'll notice it says moses specifically says you see this in exodus 7 8 so on all the way through 14 it said this miracle was done so the people would know they would have knowledge as a result, uh, so a miracle brings knowledge that gives them confidence, and it so then they can have an intelligent faith. Right. So the faith is built on what we know to be true. This is why God did miracles through Moses. Mm-hmm. So the pattern through the whole Bible is God gives some kind of sign. It could be in creation that reveals knowledge of God. It could be miracle. Could be a fulfilled prophecy. This gives the people knowledge. And then they have a faith in God based on what they know to be true. Now, Hammett pushed back. I pointed the example in John chapter 20, where at the very end of the chapter, it says, you know, these miracles are written down so people might believe and by believing have life in his name. And Thomas, for example, his 10 buddies, Thomas wasn't asked to believe something blindly. His 10 buddies said, we've seen Jesus risen from the grave. That's an evidence-based Belief, Now, I haven't pushed back and said, I don't accept that, that's hearsay, but he was missing the point. It doesn't matter for the sake of our conversation whether or not that's good evidence. We can come back to that. But the point is, when Thomas was asked to believe, it wasn't blindly believe, it was Thomas, your 10 best friends have seen this and testified this to you. It's reasonable, therefore make an intelligent step of faith. So it's not a step of faith void of evidence, It's a step of faith in light of what Thomas knew to be true. So again, we could assess whether that qualifies as good evidence or not, but it doesn't matter. The nature of belief, biblically speaking, is always take a step into where the evidence points, trust what you have reason to believe is true. That's the nature of faith. Right. Yeah, um,
0: it is probably, I think, in in my opinion, it's one of the the greatest misconceptions that people have of uh, believers, of Christians. And uh, like you just said, I just don't, I just don't understand it because I don't even have to do any kind of philosophical reasoning to show you that, no, actually, we don't believe based on a lack of evidence. I mean, all you got to do is open the Scriptures. The Scriptures themselves reveal that uh, faith is is based on evidence, like you said. But uh, does faith then become uh, something like trust? Is that a fair? um,
1: Yeah, I think it is. And here's where I think in my conversations with many people, including Hemant, when you press them and you say, what evidence would you accept as being legitimate? It tends to be a huge miracle done right in front of me Mm -hmm. that couldn't have been caused by anything else. So they raise the bar of acceptable evidence so high that any philosophical evidence, any scientific evidence, any historical Mm -hmm. evidence or testimonial evidence is automatically dismissed. Now give me a personal experience. Well, if that's the only kind of evidence you'll accept, then the Christianity likely will never be convincing enough. You might have a Paul-type experience, but these tend to be the exception. So I think many atheists just approach this with the assumption of how God is going to make himself known. And if he doesn't make himself known in that way, then faith is blind. Yeah. So if you adopt their assumptions, it makes sense. But I'm trying to push back on their assumptions just say, okay, wait a minute. Number one, is this reasonable? Number two, is this fair? Right. And I don't think it is. So I think faith, biblically speaking, is what you said. If J.P. Moreland said faith is trust, trusting what we have reason to believe is true. Right. So we're not trusting the evidence. We're trusting God right. in light of how God has revealed himself to be. So it doesn't mean certainty, but as I look at the world and I think of the fact that there is a universe that's fine-tuned we have life we have objective morality we have beauty it is the christian worldview that best explains this compared to any other worldview faith is an invitation to trust god personally in light of the signs of evidence that we see in the scriptures in the world and beyond
0: so um like you said they They'll normally say something uh, like Hemant said in the the dialogue that um, it's going to take something like a miracle right in front of me that I can't deny. Only then he later doubled down on it, and I think this is why I don't really necessarily believe most people who say I just need to see it right in front of me. I don't really believe them because they would probably do what Hemant did, which is to say, well, actually, even in that case, I would probably assume that I was hallucinating or something.
1: I have heard that from many skeptics. We're up at Berkeley And my high school students were having a dialogue with three uh, UC Berkeley students. And one of my students asked him, hey, what would convince you Christianity is true? And he said, if I saw a miracle right in front of me, I would believe. And then he paused. He said, well, then actually I wouldn't. I would assume that probably there was some kind of brain malfunction or I was hallucinating or some kind of drug. And I just realized this naturalistic worldview is so strong there's almost nothing they could do to overturn it. Now, I think if some people did see miracle in front of them, they might reconsider. But with that said, it just shows the strength of the worldview commitment. And I did did find it interesting. At the very beginning of the episode, uh, Hemant said, oh, it's my side that's dogmatic. His side is open-minded. And then when it came down to the end, they asked us what would change our views. And I said, well, if I had some horrible experience of suffering and pain in my life, I'd be foolish if I didn't admit that it didn't at least make me question Mm -hmm. God's goodness doesn't mean I'd reject it but you would naturally question it and I said if they found the body of Jesus I'd give it up and he said basically nothing would cause him he has no doubts he'd never give it up and I just thought wait a minute you know who's actually being open-minded here yeah yep exactly uh real
0: quickly or Take as much time as you need. But uh, the second, I wanted to get on to the second one real quick. The second misconception was that science and Christianity are at odds. So I was wondering if you could uh, kind of briefly unpack that idea as well.
1: Sure. I raise this because I've been doing a lot of research on Gen Z, those who are maybe five to 22 years old, roughly, the generation after millennials. Mm-hmm. And one of the big questions they have or objections to Christianity is that science is in conflict with faith. And I saw Hemet making this observation a lot in his YouTube videos and his book. And honestly, I think it's not very hard to see that they're not in conflict. Now, with that said, are there some Christian positions like young earth creationism that are in conflict with a modern scientific dating? Yes. But these are surface shallow kind of conflicts because not all... Christianity is wedded to a particular interpretation of the science and the age of the earth. That's one position within the larger Christian fold. Even questions of evolution. What do we mean by evolution? Is it guided? Is it unguided? It's not as simple as just saying, as people like to, if there was some kind of evolution, Christianity is false. I'm right. like, okay, s- slow down here. Ironically enough, it's actually out of the Judeo-Christian western tradition that we see the scientific revolution emerging people like copernicus and galileo and kepler and boyle and pascal and on and on because they believe the world was orderly they believe there's such a thing as truth they believe we are given the cultural mandate to understand and spread out and kind of control and foster the earth they believe that our minds are actually made our brains made in the image of god so the world is not only orderly But we can understand the world. All of these assumptions of science didn't develop in other parts of the world. They developed in a world that was embedded in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So we actually see the emergence of science by people who think Christianly, so to speak, and put their worldview to use. Now, atheists can do science. Of course they can. But they have to borrow from a Judeo-Christian worldview to even do it. So, I was trying to take a step back because Hemant would, he, I mean, he said things like, you know, if you believe in a virgin birth, you can't believe in miracles. Right. And I, I think, I mean, honestly, I think that's crazy because by definition, a miracle is not a violation of science, it's a supernatural act that supersedes the normal operation of the way the world works. So, ironically, if you have a miracle, It assumes that the world and the laws operate on a regular pattern. It doesn't overturn them. Miracles only make sense if there are certain regular laws within nature. So I just try to point out a few of these things and make sure people realize that there's some tension between certain theological positions and certain scientific conclusions. But that's different than saying science and Christianity are in principle in conflict. That doesn't follow.
0: Yeah. That's a good distinction to make. Um, one last question. Uh, I want to uh, respect your time here, but uh, can you tell us briefly, I was talking to Jay Warner Wallace recently on the show, and uh, he said you spilled the beans about an upcoming book on Twitter. So, did you <laughs> spill the beans, and what is the upcoming book about?
1: I did, and I just noticed two days ago on Instagram, he posted something, too. So, <laughs> I'm going to throw it back on him. We're letting the cat out of the bag, spilling the beans, whatever illustration you want to use. Uh, So Jim and I have a book that will come out in 2019, probably early summer, late spring, called So the Next Generation Will Know. And basically between the two of us, we've been teaching for a few decades combined how do we help as parents, youth pastors, Christian school teachers actually teach worldview and apologetics to the next generation. So there's something – there's some good curricula that's out there. There's some books about what students need to know. But there's never been a book that says, here's practically how you actually do this. Mm-hmm. So it's a more of a how than it is a what. Cool. And as soon as we're done, I'm gonna go finish editing his chapter, finish my last chapter, send it over, because we are getting towards that final stage. And awesome. I can tell you, it's only it's probably gonna be about 40,000 words, it's intentionally short, and just packed full of real practical things that youth influencers can do to raise up a generation of young people who know what they believe and why. So I'm pretty excited about it. There hasn't been a book like this yet.
0: Well, I look forward to it. Um, I'm sure it'll be great. And then when it comes out, we'll have you both back on uh, to talk about it. Uh, Really looking forward to it. Uh, Sean, thanks for coming on. Uh, If you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Sean McDowell, stick around. uh, We'll have a couple more questions. Again, thanks so much, Sean. You betcha. Hey guys, thanks so much for watching. Don't go anywhere just yet. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to click on the subscription button below. Whether you're on YouTube or uh, wherever you get your podcast from, be sure to subscribe to the show so we can know you're listening. And uh, stick around for the five more minute bonus segment with Sean McDowell. You're not going to want to miss this. Uh, to, to get access to that, you need to click on the Patreon link below or go to patreon.com forward slash helpmebelieve and become a supporter of our show so we can continue to do this and continue to put out more and better content uh, for you. And uh, so if you benefit from the show, be sure to support us in that way. And you'll also get access to the five more minute bonus segment with Sean McDowell. Thanks so much for watching, guys. We'll see you next time.